Amen. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 is our scripture for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and I want to begin in verse 7, okay? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. This is the Word of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been working through a summer series on ecclesiology and the doctrine of the church, and specifically tailoring that um, series uh, along our what we call our Calvary Distinctives, guiding or governing principles or priorities that we want to see by the grace of God um, dictate um, everything that we do in our uh, the life of our church. And so we've been working through this series, and I hope you've picked up one of these um, bookmarks over in the Welcome Center. I don't know if they've run out, then maybe we need to order some more as well, but hopefully you picked one of these out. They're bookmarks that we just put out for the purpose of you just keeping these before you. We have our mission statement on the one side, and the other side, uh, we've been working through these distinctives, that we are a Bible-centered, Christ-exalting, God-dependent, worship-motivated, mission-focused, love-expressing, service-minded mercy practicing church we strive to be that beloved by the power of the spirit of god and by the strength that he supplies amen those are our commitments that we want to be about as a church so i hope that you have um, taken time to think about the messages that the various pastors have brought to you from the pulpit along the lines of those uh, calvary distinctives and how even your ministry here personally how you as a family are seeking to live those out by the grace of god as you serve of Christ here in the context of the local church, okay? And so this morning, I want to talk to us about um, our seventh Calvary distinctive, um, being a service-minded church. What does it mean to be a service-minded individual? What does it mean to be a service-minded Christian church? Uh, This week, we had a wonderful opportunity to see so many service-minded people, didn't we? Uh, serving uh, uh, the, are the kids that came for VBS for our vacation Bible school. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity that we had to not only minister to kids that um, um, are part of some of our families here at the church, but also kids that come from the various uh, places here in our community and even outside of Burbank. What a wonderful opportunity to see a service-minded church be about edification, the building up of the disciples here at this church, and then be about evangelism, outreach to those who come from without. So we saw, I got a chance as a pastor this week to just kind of walk around and even talk to some of you who did that, and it was so evident to me that uh, many of you are very service-minded, and I just want to affirm you and commend you as one of your pastors that that is exactly what the Lord wants us to be about. Amen? Serving him by serving uh, his people and also doing evangelism and outreach. You know, recently for about 10 days or so, 
we had an opportunity to host missionaries to Lebanon in our home for a little more than a week. And, um, you know, we knew this family from the past. So we had a wonderful time catching up and hearing stories. Our kids basically grew up together for about eight or nine years. So even the kids, now teens, most of them, uh, we had a chance to hear all the stories and all the things that they hid from us when we were living together in the same complex. But, you know, one of the things that really encouraged me and that encourages me about missionaries is that they are very servant-minded individuals, aren't they? I mean, they were there for about 10 days or so, and every single day, it seems, and multiple times during the day when they were uh, with us in our house, they were constantly asking, what can I do to help? What can I do to serve? Even the kids, what can I do to come alongside of you? What can I do to to, to help you cook? What a wonderful service-minded family. It was pretty neat to hear that. You know, I, got, I, I traveled to Southeast Asia, and I remember traveling to Nepal and meeting Nepali brethren who um, their favorite way of, of having people address them as Christians was Siwa, Siwa, servant. I am your servant, they would often say. And even in Latin America, some of you have traveled there uh, to Honduras, for instance, as a church, and oftentimes the, the Latin American um, Christians will say something like this, Aquí estoy para servirle, pastor. I'm here to serve you, pastor. Somos, somos sus siervos. We are your servants. That is pretty typical, beloved, when you travel outside of the States, when you travel to some of these mission fields, where the brethren, their preferred title is servant. I'm here to serve you. Because they see themselves as people who have been saved to serve Christ, don't they? It's a mindset that orients them toward wanting to serve other people and be sacrificing for the needs of other people. I wonder how many of us, if we were very honest, view ourselves this way as servants of Christ and servants in the church. I wonder how many of us, if we were to, if we were to really be honest, see ourselves as people who are saved to serve Christ. Saved to serve Christ. See, part of the problem is we have professionalized ministry so much, haven't we? The typical Christian, if, if you were to be asked, give me the names of those who are the, the ministers in your church or who are the servants in your church. Give me the names of the people who do the work of the ministry in your church. The typical Christian might answer something along these lines. Well, the deacons, of course. Dale Ventrice, Len Bentley, deacons in our church. Those guys that have the official title of deacon are the ones that are, that, are, that are servants in the church. Or maybe Elder Lou Stone or Greg Rhodes or Tim Townsend or one of the pastors, Pastor Brock or Alex or Tim Carnes or Campus Hernandez. Those are the people who do the work of the ministry. And yet the Bible, beloved, tells us that every single one of us who are Christians, who profess Jesus Christ as Lord, as Pastor Tim Carnes encouraged us last week, that we are to confess Jesus as Lord. If you confess Jesus as Lord, then you are a servant of Christ. You're called to serve. You're called to be a service-minded individual. If you are committed to following Jesus Christ, beloved, you will love who Jesus loves. And Jesus loves His church, doesn't He? He loves His church. So you will love His people. You will serve His people. We've been saved to serve as Christians. We understand that. And so that's what I want us to consider this morning in our passage and be reminded of the fact that serving Christ should be our delight. 
It's not just out of duty and obligation that we serve Christ. But we're going to see that that also comes into play here when we don't feel like serving and we don't have the tickling feelings in our stomach to serve. We are still called and obligated to serve, but it should be our delight and our privilege to serve. So I want us to see that here in, first, in the book of First Peter. Now, if you were to boil down the theme of the letter of First Peter, it would go something like this. First Peter is about loving submission in the face of suffering and persecution. Loving submission in the face of suffering and persecution. Submission in the face of persecution is emphasized all throughout the book. And so by the time you get to First Peter chapter 4, um, he really ra- ramps it up. He talks about suffering in chapter 4, verses 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. The fact that we ought to be suffering because of the fact that Christ, our Lord, our Savior, has set the pattern for suffering by virtue of his, the way that he lived his life and going all the way to the cross. So we ought to suffer well as Christians. And then he talks about holiness in verses 3 through 5. The fact that we ought not to be living like the world anymore, but we ought to be now pursuing Christ and being holy, Christ-like. Then he talks about fervent love for one another. Fervent love for one another, that we have to be people who are loving each other fervently. He talks also, if you notice in verse 7, that we have to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So we have to be people who are functioning in such a way that we are displaying gospel-transformed lives, even in the midst of suffering and persecution in the world. These are instructions, in other words of how Christians are to conduct themselves even in the worst kinds of situations. People who are suffering well, who are pursuing holiness, who are prayerful at the end of verse 7, and who are loving one another fervently. And that fervent love, if you notice in verse 8, is a love that is displayed in covering a multitude of sins in the way that we um, act towards one another. It's a love that is displayed, verse 9, in being hospitable to one another without complaint. So he begins to talk about how even this fervent love fleshes itself out in our relationships with one another. And then he talks about the fact that this fervent love, notice in verses 10 or 11, is to flesh itself out in the way that we serve one another in the church. The way that we use what God has given us, His resources for serving one another in the church. And I find it particularly impactful for me what he says, if you notice in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be prayerful, fervent in your love, be hospitable, serve, verses 10 or 11. Notice that in verse 7. I think that is so significant that he says that. Because our attitude many times, beloved, might be, um, you know what? Um, we know how this deal ends already. Salvation is secured. My Christianity is based upon what Jesus did on the cross for me. I'm saved, so I can just kind of stay, be passive and not really be active in my service for the Lord. But he says, the end of all things is near. And one of the implications of the imminent return of Christ, in other words, verses 10 or 11, is that you are serving Christ by serving his people. Using God's resources. I think it's so significant. And so here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 or 11, if you're taking notes, here's the, the, here are the three points that we're going to hang our thoughts on, okay? I want us to see the means of service, the manner of service, and the motivation for service. The means, the manner, and the motivation of service. And my goal, beloved, is that after hearing this message, 
that I would spur you on all the more, listen to me, to fulfill the good works that God has prepared for you to do. Then how Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 puts it, that we've been saved, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My hope and prayer is that we would apply this message and that we would walk in those good works that God has prepared before us. So let's look, first of all, at the means of service. The means of service. Notice verse 10. As each one has received a special gift. Underline there in verse 10, each one. Each one. That is, every Christian, every believer... Please hear me, beloved. Without exception, without discrimination, without partiality, has been fully equipped by Almighty God for service. We've been equipped. The gifting that God imparts to us is universal. Everybody has it. I find that very comforting for us. Very encouraging. Because oftentimes we might tend to think, well, there are others in the church who the Lord really needs, but what do I have to impart here in this church? Well, this passage tells me that the gifting is universal, that you have been especially gifted by God. And the way that you are wired is needed in the church, right? It's needed in the church. You've been equipped for service. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, one of the parallel passages to the spiritual gifts says this, But one and the same Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, works all these things, listen to this, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Speaking of spiritual gifts, that the Holy Spirit imparts to you spiritual gifts. You know what happened at the point of salvation? Whenever that moment was when you were birthed anew in Christ... Not only did the Spirit of God awaken you from spiritual death, set you apart, sealed you, but also He came to permanently indwell in you as a believer, and with Him came spiritual gifts. So if the Spirit of God dwells in you permanently, guess what? You are spiritually gifted for service. And I like that, you know, that word in verse 10, gift. It's better translated there, giftedness. It's better to understand it as as gifting or giftedness. He's not saying that we have one and only one gift, but it's really a gift set, if you will. A gifting or giftedness. So we are universally gifted. Notice, secondly, under this means of service, this gifting is unique. This gifting is unique. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, But to each one of us, Grace was given, and then listen, according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is, Christ measures out your gifting according to His will, according to His divine prerogative. There are variety and degrees of gifting according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each of us have been gifted universally. Each of us have been gifted uniquely. We are fully equipped, fully resourced, beloved, for every single good work that God has prepared for you to do. Do you find encouragement in that? I do. Because I see myself so inadequate to do what I do. So ill-equipped, so needy. And yet, you know what? It's not about you or I, is it? It's about how God has gifted each and every one of us and gifted us universally and uniquely. What a beautiful thing. A good employer does this, don't they? 
Have you ever worked in a, in a place I did for six years at a laboratory where they had all kinds of quota that we needed to meet, all kinds of demands, all kinds of requirements, all kinds of different things that they wanted us to accomplish, and they were very good about lording it over us, all of the requirements. But you know what the worst thing about that place was? They didn't give you the supplies and the materials that you needed. Everything that we had, even our technology, was behind the other laboratories. We didn't have the best pipettes to be able to do our experiments. We didn't even have, oftentimes the computers wouldn't work. We didn't even have at times writing utensils for crying out loud. Finally, it got to the point where we met with them. And the one thing that we brought to their attention is, listen, if you want us to to fulfill these requirements, this quota, you need to give us everything that we need. And we give them a list and they follow through, thankfully. Good employers understand that, don't they? Listen to me. In a greater way, beloved. Our Heavenly Father, do you understand? He's adopted you into His family. You are His child. And there's nothing good that your Heavenly Father hasn't done to fully equip you and resource you for everything that He requires for you to do. What a loving Heavenly Father He is, isn't He? He gives us everything that we need for service. Every good thing. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And yet... Some of us think or act as if, you know, God has given me the short end of the stick. He's left me, he, he's left me out. He has favorite children in this church. They're more gifted than me. They're more able than me. What do I have? Listen, beloved, God, our impartial heavenly father, does not have favorites, favorite children, right? We are all the same in Christ Jesus. He fully accepts you, fully justifies you in Christ And He loves you. He's given you everything that you need, salvation and spiritual gifts for you to accomplish everything He has set for you to accomplish. And so the means of service are God's gifts, universally given. Every single one of us has them, unique to each each individual, according to God's manifold grace, He says in verse 10, His multicolored, many-faceted grace. Oh, it's so beautiful, this picture. You might think of our, of our gifting as like being given a beautiful painting with a beautiful variety and mixture of colors forming one beautiful painting or masterpiece. Think of it that way. In the same way, the Holy Spirit gives you a, a mixture of gifting or giftedness, a beautiful blending of, of gifts, if you will, for you to serve Him. I want you to notice also in verse 10 that these are also grace gifts. These are grace gifts. I love that word translated gift there, charisma. Charisma. We get our word charis, grace, from that particular word there. They are grace gifts. These are God-given resources. God-given supply, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 6 says that it's the same God who works all these things in all persons. In other words, all of these things come from God. He is the great giver of the spiritual gifts by His grace. And the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is saturated with references to the Spirit of God who is the energizer of spiritual gifts in the lives of His people and in the context of the church. And here in our passage, notice... It says that each one has received, each one has received passive verb, meaning that this has been done to us. God, by his grace, has given us these gifts and has done that to every or for every one of his children by his grace. They're grace gifts. Why is that important? Listen to me. No Christian generates, 
manufactures, earns, merits any gifting. None of us pray for these things. None of us are asking and begging God for these things. It's okay to ask the Lord to, to especially enable you to do uh, ministry tasks. But ultimately, it's by His divine prerogative, His grace. He has graciously chosen to give us these gifts, beloved. Thus, as we're going to see later, there's no room for boasting, no room for selfishness, no room for self-centeredness, right? Everything comes from Him for the purpose of serving Him. Please also note that these are spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. You say, where did you get spiritual from in verse 10? Well, the word doesn't appear here in, in chapter uh, 4, verse 10, but in the parallel passage on gifts, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul begins his discussion on these gifts by saying this, now concerning spiritual gifts. And he goes to ta- on to ta- speak of these gifts as a manifestation of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, speaking of spiritual gifts, distributing to each one individually just as He, the Holy Spirit, wills. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, again, he refers to these spiritual gifts. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly, he says, spiritual gifts. The point being that these are not natural abilities. These are not natural talents like playing a, an instrument, singing, like being a, a gifted athlete. We often talk about that, right? That guy is a very gifted athlete or that gal is a very gifted athlete. We're not talking about special talents or natural abilities or like maybe being a good cook. And that is a, that's not a spiritual gift, right? I'm so thankful that my wife is a great cook, but that's not a spiritual gift. Or even the ability to, be, to speak well. Being a a natural, good public speaker, that is not in and of itself a spiritual gift. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about spiritual gifts, um, spirit-empowered abilities that come to us from God. Natural talents can certainly relate to and complement spiritual gifting, but they are not identical to it, right? Now, how might we define then spiritual gifts? Here's a simple definition for you. Spiritual gifts are God-given spiritual abilities for service in the church. God-given spiritual abilities for service in the church. And then we might ask this question, what are these gifts? What are these gifts? You know, there's been so much ink spilt in precisely trying to define these um, gifts in in um, in the New Testament. And what you will find, there are four places that you go to to study spiritual gifts in the primary passages, at least, in the New Testament, okay? 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, which is our, our particular passage and what you're going to find as you go through, the, through those four passages that really speak about both um, outline some of these spiritual gifts as well as some of the principles in our exercising of those gifts. What you're going to find is that they are primarily going to fall under two broad categories. Two broad categories. One of them are what we might call the sign gifts. The sign gifts. Some people have referred to those as the revelatory gifts or the miraculous gifts, if you will. Some of those sign gifts would include the New Testament gift of prophecy. 
Or even in the Old Testament, the ability of individuals that were especially chosen of God to be God's spokesmen. They spoke for God to the people. They were prophets who foretold future events that happened just as God said they would happen. They would prophesy, foretell about those new things. And they would give this new revelation to the people that came to them directly from God. And they would communicate then to the people. They were essentially mediators speaking on behalf of God to the people. Prophecy. Prophets. So unique was prophecy by the mouth of God's spokesman that one who pretended or claimed to prophecy, but whose prophecies didn't come true in the future, was severely dealt with by God. That's what a lot of these false teachers today on television that claim or pretend to be God's prophets, self-proclaimed prophets, are they willing to really dissect their ministry and, and see if every single prophecy that they have prophesied has come true to the T? Because if it hasn't, then they should be dead, right? But the purpose of prophets and prophecy was fulfilled with the canon of Scripture. Being closed. The Bible that you hold in your hands, beloved, is God's complete revelation. Everything that God wants us to know is, is here in God's Word. God's complete self-revelation. And so, prophets and prophecy was fulfilled with the closing of the canon of Scripture. Now the Bibles that we have in our hands and with the establishment of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says this, that the church was built upon, listen to this, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. Listen, once the foundation was laid, prophets and prophecy in the sense of foretelling the future and giving new revelation from God to God's people ceased. Why? Because now we have the complete revelation from God, right? The church has also been established. It's growing. The foundation's been laid. Practically speaking, just remember, in those days, people didn't have Bibles lying around, did they? People didn't have manuscripts readily available, scrolls for them to access readily. Thus, the need for a word from the Lord by a prophet or an apostle. But once we have the complete revelation, there's no need for prophecy and, and uh, prophets anymore. Secondly, there's another sign gift as well. There were tongues and, in the, inter- and the interpretation of tongues. The complement to the speaking of so-called tongues was the interpretation of those tongues. Now, much has been written about that as well. Scripture is very clear that those tongues were not heavenly languages, but known languages, beloved, that people actually understood, right? Acts chapter 2, when they, it says that, that, that people were hearing those who were speaking in tongues, they were hearing them speak of the mighty deeds of God in their own languages. So these were not heavenly languages, or senseless gibberish as we see today in so many different contexts. Listen to me, these were known languages that could be understood. And their purpose was fourfold. One, tongues and the interpretation of tongues authenticated the gospel that was preached by the apostles and the early church. It was an authenticating sign. Secondly, it was a sign to unbelievers about the truthfulness of the gospel. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. 
a sign to unbelievers about the truthfulness of the gospel. Third, it was a sign of judgment to the Jews, at, in particular at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that due to the, rede- the rejection of the Jews, of their Messiah, God was now extending His blessing to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the other nations. It became a sign of judgment to His own people, to the Jews. Four, to demonstrate the international nature of God's kingdom, which was always God's plan from the very beginning. That's why in the book of Revelation, what do we find? This heavenly choir made up of every nation, tongue, tribe, who will worship God. One of the amazing things about this whole debate around tongues and the interpretation of tongues is that we go to Acts chapter 2 to debate and pick a fight with one another about, are they for today? Were they heavenly languages? Were they not? But you know what is one of the things that is missed? God was showing the international nature of that which he was doing in establishing his kingdom here on earth and forevermore of people from every nation, tongue, tribe. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Again, now that we have the complete revelation of God, we have no need for the New Testament gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Thirdly, healing miracles. Healing miracles. In the Old Testament, God gave people the supernatural ability to heal. Jesus, of course, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, healed people mightily with great power. He gave his apostles in the book of Mark the ability to heal. And even um, as, as an exception, gave a specially commissioned group of 70 in Luke 10 to be able to go out and, and perform acts of healing. Why? To authenticate his message. The fact that the Messiah was here to authenticate the good news concerning his person and his work. It was an authenticating uh, thing that he gave. What is the gift of healing biblically? It's the supernatural ability to heal all kinds of diseases. And hear me, instantly, completely, and definitively. Instantly, completely, and definitively. This special supernatural ability, too, was for a time to confirm the witness of Christ and the early church. But listen to me, beloved. God no longer supernaturally gives the ability to people to heal others instantly, completely, and definitively. Let me repeat that again. God no longer supernaturally gives the ability to people to heal others instantly, completely, and definitively. You say, well, are you saying that God doesn't heal people? Not saying that at all. How many of us have witnessed, experientially speaking, God answering prayer and healing people that we know? I have. As pastors, we get the privilege of doing that of going and praying for people or knowing of of prayer requests that have been answered of an emotional nature, uh, spiritual nature, and sometimes of a physical nature. Beloved, we are not saying that God no longer heals, that God no longer does miracles, or that we shouldn't even pray for healing. We should do those things. What I'm saying is, is that God no longer... In the same way as in the New Testament, supernaturally gives the ability to people to heal others instantly, completely, and definitively. If you have this gift sitting in here today, then why are you allowing many of us to suffer? Seriously. Isn't that a reasonable question to ask? If you have that gift, why are you holding out? What an unloving, hateful thing to do, right? To withhold that from people. Listen, why did the Apostle Paul, 
Even in his own ministry, though he had been given the power, the authenticating power of healing, why did he get to the point where he needed a personal physician, Luke, to travel with him at all times? Couldn't Paul just heal himself? No. Eventually that gift also ceased with the establishment of the church and the authentication of the apostolic gospel passed on to to them by Jesus Christ himself. Also, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, says to Timothy, take a little wine for your frequent ailments. Listen, Paul says to Timothy, if healing was permanent, then don't you think that servants like Paul and Timothy, of all people, should have been able to heal one another? Maybe fly in the local healer, right? They couldn't fly him in, boat him in or whatever from another place, right? Listen, why, could it, why, why did Paul have to... Have to Instruct Timothy that way. Most importantly, Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 12.12 of the signs of a true apostle that were performed through him in the midst of the Corinthians. And these signs, miracles and healings and tongues and interpretation were the signs of a true apostle. So what's my point, beloved? In some, sign gifts were designed for a time to authenticate the true messengers from the false ones and to authenticate the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the purpose of the sign gifts. We might, con- we might call them confirmatory gifts, right? Is that even a word? Confirming gifts. Is that a word, Lorena? Confirmatory? Good. Or expert linguist. Peter even says in Acts 2.22 that Jesus was a man attested to them by God with miracles and wonders and signs, listen, which God uh, um, performed through Christ. Why? To confirm the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that his message was true, right? If that was the case for Jesus, that certainly the case was for the apostles, the early followers of Christ, and it is the case even today, right? Those were confirmatory gifts, Now quickly, a second broad category are these spiritual gifts that we're talking about. These spiritual gifts. And first, a word of caution as I I sort of name some of these um, quickly. A word of caution for us not to over-define these spiritual gifts in our lives or in the lives of others. I think it's very helpful to help one another assess and evaluate this. As long as we don't, we don't get so nitpicky um, trying to over-define them, we need to view these as general categories, a blending even, a combination of one or more of these, according to the measure of Christ's gift, right? Also, I think it's very important that, um, though we've been universally gifted, we're also uniquely gifted. And what I mean by that is this. What you bring to the table, given your spiritual gifting, coupled by the complement of your natural abilities and talents and experiences, age, background, is something beautiful and absolutely needed in the church. So there's a universality of gifting, as I said at the beginning, but also the uniqueness of how you are wired as an individual. Okay, so think about that even as we walk through some of these very quickly. Okay, there are the speaking gifts. Speaking gifts, such as the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the gift of, uh, uh, of evangelism. These gifts are especially important in the church because these are the people that help others understand Scripture. And listen to this, as originally intended and rightly divided uh, from the Word of God. The ability to exhort, to admonish, to encourage, even inspire people very practically from the Word. 
I think some of our counselors in, in, our, in, in the church here, all of us are called to be counselors of one another. But there are those who are very, very able to do this in our church, who are biblical counselors, who are, who are able to come alongside of you and even inspire you from the Word of God, exhort you, admonish you, teach you in the context of one-on-one how to live out biblical principles in your life. There's the gift of knowledge and wisdom as well, which are... Gifts that really complement each other very well. To Just people who know God's Word well, who are able to help others to apply the Word in a very skillful, wise way. There's the gift of administration or leadership, we might call it. Some people name this gift as the name of uh, uh, the gift of piloting, of navigating, if you will. Le- those who lead in the church, those who can provide oversight. Visionary types may have these gifts of piloting or administration or leadership. Then there's a the gift of, as some of you say, discernment, but the right way to say it is discernment. That wasn't very funny, was it? Backstory. <clears throat> there's a backstory to this. There's a the gift of discernment, which is the supernatural ability to not only distinguish between good and evil, but listen, also between what is good and best from the Word of God. Gift of discernment. Then there are very practical service gifts. The gift of service, the gift of helps, the gift of mercy. This is a supernatural ability to meet needs, to mercifully come alongside of other people when they're hurting emotionally, spiritually, but especially physically. I mean, you, we have those people in this church, don't we? I mean, I do not always have the gift of mercy. I got to tell you that right now. Some of you say amen to that, right? But some of you do. You're so helpful. You're so service-oriented. You want to jump in. You can empathize with people. You are really, really good at identifying people's needs and knowing exactly what will meet that spiritual, emotional, or physical need. Excuse me, need in the life of somebody else. There's the gift of faith. All of us are called to be people of faith. But this is a supernatural ability um, in Christians, that no matter what kind of affliction you or others are going through, you are a person who hands, who holds on to the throne of the grace of, of, of the throne of God in prayer. You are the prayer warriors of the church. Not only that, though, in any type of suffering, no matter what the difficulty is, you trust God and you exhort others to trust God as well. Now, as you look at these, it doesn't mean. That just because you don't have the gift of mercy, that you shouldn't be a merciful person, right? I don't have the gift of mercy, so I'm going to be harsh towards that person. No, now you're in sin, right? Now you need to repent and confess that. Or just because you don't have the gift of giving that you shouldn't give. You know what? I'll let the big givers give because they have the gift of giving. No, we all have a responsibility to give. Or just because you don't have the gift of faith, then you should always be a doubter, always questioning God, and you live in there, and you're okay with that. No, we're all called to trust God. So there's a sense in which all of these should be true of us, and yet there's a distinguishable spiritual gift of teaching, for instance, of impartation of the Word of God. The question is, then how do I know what my gifting is, Pastor? How do I know? I, I hear what you're saying, that we've been equipped, that God has provided the means for us to be able to serve Him. How do I know what my gifting is? First and foremost, beloved, I would encourage you this. Get plugged in to just serve. Right? Just begin to serve. You know, we're not commanded in the Scriptures to serve only in so long as you 
fully understand what your gift set is, what your gifting is, you're commanded to serve. And we're going to see that in a couple of minutes. Secondly, there's the issue of passion. Passion. And the in the holy sense of passion. You can have sinful passions. But what is, where are you most passionate about serving? Where do you, what do you, where do you find joy in doing? What do you get excited about? What energizes you? What excites you? Listen, even though the ministry of the word is difficult, especially in private, as I've told many of you, that God hits me between the eyes in my study in private, this is what excites me and energizes me, to study the word every week simply for discovery in private of our great God and then being able to come in a way, Lord willing, that is helpful to you in the impartation of the truth. This excites me. This invigorates me. But it's not easy. Isn't that how we would describe much of our service? There are things that that we're passionate about, but it's hard. And sometimes it's discouraging. And when others don't come and help, it's very discouraging and very disheartening. But do you stop doing it? No, right? It's almost like we like the pain, right? But that's what happens when you're passionate about a particular area of ministry. You continue to persevere because it's what excites you, invigorates you, and you know it's what God has called you to do. So what are you passionate about? Third, there's the issue of affirmation. What do others say about your service? Do other people affirm you that you are being effective in that particular area of service? And then fourthly, there's the issue of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Over time, is there visible fruitfulness in your service? Is there visible fruitfulness? Listen, we are here to help you as your shepherds. But I'm going to tell you something. I am not here, and I know the elders would say the same thing. We are not here to make you something. We can't do that, right? These are grace gifts. We're not here to make you something. We simply want to help you discover how God has gifted you and release you to pursue that with joy, excitement, exuberance, passion, and blessing other people, beloved. Kind of like a coach on a team who knows his players, knows what they're most effective at, knows their abilities, knows all of that, right? And the best thing to do with a player is not to stick him at quarterback when he is a lineman, right? Frustration can arise in the same way in ministry. It can arise when we don't function within our giftedness. But people, beloved, who function within their gifting find it joyful, exciting. They're energized by that service because they're gifted in that area, even if it's hard, even if there are low points, even if sometimes it's disheartening because of others not coming alongside of you and helping. You still find joy in those things. You keep coming back to those things. So, beloved, take comfort and be encouraged that God has provided the means for serving him in the context of his church through the spiritual gifts. Secondly, we want to see the manner of service, the manner of service. Notice verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The question that we want to answer under this, the manner of service is how... How are we to serve in the context of the local church? You see, it's not enough to just be comforted, to know that God has equipped you as a Christian, right? To serve him. You need to get to what? Work. You need to get to work. We are to serve diligently. 
We are to serve diligently. Notice, employ it. Employ that gifting. Present tense verb, employ it. Continually employ. Continually exercise your gifts. Put them to work in a habitual sense. That's what he's saying. Romans 12, verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us, listen, is to exercise them accordingly. Listen. The last thing you want to do when someone gives you a gift is stick it in the closet, stick it in the drawer, and never ever utilize that gift, right? It's the last thing you want to do. Shame on me. Recently, I'm looking through my wallet, through behind some of the, some business cards that I have in my wallet, and you know what I discovered? A gift certificate to the Cheesecake Factory. Holy cow! I'm thinking, what in the world? This thing's been here since like last Christmas, I think. Seven or eight months. It's not benefiting me. It's not benefiting anybody. And so it was my son's birthday. So we all went as a family to the Cheesecake Factory. And that uh, gift certificate alleviated some of the suffering of the big bill, right? (laughs) Family of seven. Family of seven. Listen to me. In the way, in the same way, beloved, God's gifts are not designed to be hidden, hoarded, or hijacked for our purposes, right? They are designed to be exercised diligently. It is to be our habit continually to employ our gifts. So the manner in which we are to serve is diligently. Also, we are to serve beneficially. Notice, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, here it is, in serving one another. I love that word serving. Diakonuntes. We get our word deacon, diakonos, from that particular word. For the official servants in the church. And oftentimes some of us can have that attitude that it's the official deacons in the church who hold that office, who are the ones that are to be serving and facilitating service. Beloved, listen to me. What that verse tells me is that all of us are ministers. Each and every one of us are servants. We're all to be using our gifts. We take up after our Lord, don't we? Jesus was the ultimate servant. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Our Lord Jesus served while on this earth all the way to the cross in dying in the place of sinners for your sins, if you will trust in Him, right? Served all the way to the cross. The great Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Let a man regard us... In this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Listen, if Jesus and the apostles and these great leaders in the church viewed themselves as servants for the benefit of others, we as God's people, as Christians, are no different, right? We are to benefit others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit, speaking of spiritual gifts, for the common good. We're all ministers, beloved, saved to serve Christ and benefit other people. We are to serve beneficially. Listen, as I've told you before, if you are a follower and lover of Christ, you will love and serve His church. It will be your desire, though it is difficult, to use your gifting to love God's people. Amen? That's what we are going to be about as people, beloved. Our gifts are not to be hoarded, hidden, hijacked for personal benefit. You know, I want to serve so that uh, my self-esteem and sense of value and significance will be raised. Because now I feel needed. 
Wrong reason to serve. Repent of that. Confess it to the Lord. And remember that it's for His glory and for the benefit of others. You know, I want to serve because it brings respect and admiration from other people. Eh, no. Right? It is not for the admiration of other people so that others can see how great of a guy you are, how great of a spiritual woman you are. I want to serve so that I can get a position in the church and I'm, a, I'm in line to get the next elderate or deacon position or ministry leader in the church. Eh, wrong reason. We are to be serving for the benefit of other people, beloved. It's not for us. It's for the common good of others. So I'm asking and I'm challenging you this morning with the question, are you investing your gifts for the good and the benefit of your brethren out of love and gratitude for God or not? It's a key question, isn't it? For each of us individually. Well, I don't think my gifts are really needed, Pastor. Listen to me. Yes, they are. You are universally gifted. All of us are. And you are unique. You are a member of a body. You have something to impart to this local congregation, if I can make it specific to us, that nobody else can contribute. You are a member of this body. Every member is needed. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. For the, per- for the person who feels like, hey, what do I have to offer? He says this, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Imagine that. If you were just a walking eyeball, that wouldn't be very profitable, would it? You have great eyesight. That's all you would have. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. Listen to me. God has placed you in this particular local body, has gifted you as a believer. You have a gift set. And then complementing that are your abilities and experiences and talents and all of that so that you benefit this body. You are absolutely indispensable in one sense to this body. Amen? That's what this teaches us. Mark Dever puts it this way. Being a disciple of Jesus means orienting our lives toward others just as Jesus did. It means laboring for the sake of others. This love for others is at the heart of discipling. We set our sights on serving others for Christ's sake, just as Christ came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, end quote. Use our gifts for the benefit of others, beloved. We are orienting our lives towards serving the body. So we are to serve diligently, beneficially. We are to serve fruitfully. Fruitfully. Notice, as good stewards. As good stewards. I love that word, stewards. Great metaphor. In New Testament times, there were bad stewards. And then there were good stewards who were characterized by not only managing the possessions, the household affairs of their master, but listen, also sought to produce profit for their master. They were fruitful stewards who produced fruit for their master. Like the faithful stewards in Matthew 25, remember? Jesus gives talents to three different individuals. To one he gave five, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. Remember what the guys with five talents and two talents did? They went and they doubled the profit so that when their master got back, one gave them back ten, well, the other four. And do you remember the, the, the unfaithful steward who was given one talent, what he did? He dug it, right? Dug it, dug it away. And by the time that the, that the master came back, what did he give back to him? One talent. That's it. 
It's an unfaithful steward. Remember Joseph in Genesis who managed the affairs of Pharaoh and made him great prophet so that everybody was coming to Pharaoh? That was a faithful steward. Joseph was a faithful steward. Listen to me, beloved. Are you serving with an aim to bear fruit for Christ like that? To be a faithful steward of your precious Lord or for your precious Lord? Are you investing God's gifts into his kingdom? I heard a great quote the other day. And it went something like this. There are two things on earth that are eternal. Two things. The word of God. First Peter 1.24 says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And then the second thing that is eternal are the souls of people. Are you investing your gifts into the souls of people? I would say that investing ourselves into the kingdom at this present time is very much about making disciples and investing our gifts into the souls of people, right? You ought to be fruitful for Christ. And my fear as your pastor is that some of you are, listen to me, in sin by not faithfully stewarding what God has given you. It isn't an issue about rule keeping in this church. It's an issue of, are you submitting as a good steward to God's word, to faithfully seeking to be fruitful in the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved? That's the issue. God has graced each of you as believers with a a beautiful tapestry of divine endowments and gifting. Listen, we don't deserve neither our salvation nor our gifts. We haven't done anything to earn our salvation or this gifting that we have. Everything that we have is according to the grace of God. And so can I say this to you? Ultimately, if you are not serving, then you need to return to the gospel that you claim to believe. Because you are not driven by a heart of gratitude and thankfulness to serve the Christ who has saved you. Love for Christ and gratitude for what Christ has done is the ultimate motivation, isn't it? For serving Him. Because he's given everything for you. I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He exhorts us to, to be a living and holy sacrifice. But he says in 12.1 of Romans, Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, he says, Because of the tender pities of God, in light of God's mercies in the gospel, his saving you of your sins from the penalty and the power of sin, and one day from the presence of your sin, in light of that, he says, present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice. See, a response to the gospel, to God transforming us, is what? Service. Service and sacrifice. And he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts there in Romans 12. But it all builds on the mercies of God. He says it's reasonable. It's your reasonable service of worship. It's logical. It makes sense that you would serve him in light of his tender pities. Can I give you two more under the manner of our service? We are to serve joyfully, beloved. We are to, the manner of our service should be diligent, beneficial, fruitful, grateful. And we are to serve joyfully. Joyfully. Listen, what is your attitude currently in your service? And I'm talking not not about what other people can see on the outside. I'm talking about what only God can see in your heart. Are you a joyful servant of Christ? And let's talk about from the heart then what shows itself externally. If people were to describe you, would they remember an angry face? 
in your service? A frustrated face? An annoyed face? A I'm burdened by having to serve you kind of face? Or are you joyful? What is your attitude in service? I think oftentimes we forget that service is a privilege, a blessing, not a right. Amen? That we, are, we have been given the privilege to serve Christ, and we are to do so with joy. And that joy, beloved, is not based upon our circumstances, not based upon our expectations and our ministries being met. It's based upon the eternal riches that we have in Christ. Amen? That's why Peter began that, the letter this way. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though you're suffering, he says, rejoice in the fact that you have this inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He says, in this salvation and inheritance, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you've been distressed by various trials. Our joy is not based upon our expectations being met in ministry. People not doing everything we want them to do. Our joy is based upon the inheritance that we have by virtue of our salvation in Christ. Amen? One last one. We are to serve lovingly. Lovingly. Pastor Brock, a couple of weeks ago, preached out of 1 Corinthians 13. And Do you remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of spiritual gifts? And Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 13 that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, it profits me nothing, right? I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal in anything that I do as far as spiritual gifting if I am not motivated by love. Love. Earlier we read, or my brother Tim Townsend read, John chapter 13, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Listen, Jesus loved his disciples to the max. How? By serving them because he loved them, right? He loved them. He says, you need to do the same for one another. We've seen the means, the manner, finally, the motivation for service. Verse 11. Why should, what should be our supreme motivation for serving Christ in the church? Notice, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength with which God supplies. In other words, whether your gifting falls under the broad category of speaking, gifts, teaching, exhortation, encouragement, knowledge, wisdom, you name it, or you are to do it in a God-directed way. In other words, speak forth God's message, not your opinions, not your experiences. Deliver God's word, God's message. Or, if your gifting falls under the broad category of serving gifts, you and I are to do it in a God-dependent way, not trusting in our own strength, right? The strength comes from the Lord. Thomas Schreiner writes, it is God who provides the needed strength to carry out His Work, thus we should serve dependent on Him at all times. I like that. And because it's His work, He gets the glory, right? Notice, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our motivation, beloved, is that God would be glorified. As someone has written, the provider of the gifts is always the one who is adored and praised. End quote. And Peter adds his hearty amen to this. So let it be. It's an affirmation. His apostolic approval that God is to receive all glory. All glory. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. 
men. It's all for the glory of God, beloved. It's not for self-exaltation. It's not for personal popularity. It's not so that you feel fulfilled in your life or needed by other people. It's for the glory of God that we do what we do. It's for doxology. It's for His glory, for His worship, for His praise. Can I just encourage and challenge us? Beloved, the health of every church, every Christian church that is committed to the Word of God depends on highly committed participants, not passive spectators. Did you hear that? Our spiritual health and vibrancy as a local church, as as Calvary, depends upon every single one of you being highly committed participants, not passive spectators. And your health depends upon it as well. Every single one of you has a gift set that is indispensable to the life of this church. And when you operate in a passive way, you hinder the work of Christ here at Calvary Bible Church. Own it. That's what the passage is instructing us, isn't it? And it's all by His grace that we are able to, out of love and from a heart of gratitude, flesh out our gifts. Amen? Listen, there are good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Are you walking in those? Are you walking in those? We are here to help you as your shepherds, to help you discover those and to release you for ministry. It is our joy to see you vibrant and healthy, edifying your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, all for the ultimate um, purpose of glorifying God. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then my brother's going to come on up. Father God, Lord, thank you that you are a loving, gracious, heavenly Father who has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have not given us commands, things to follow in obeying your word, and not given us everything that we need, all the resources that we need. Thank you for equipping us. Father, may we, by the power of your spirit and the grace that you supply, be people who employ our gifts. Help us to do so in a way that pleases you joyfully, out of a heart of gratitude for the transforming power of the gospel in our own lives, and ultimately for the purpose of glorifying you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.